Well, hello. I'm going to start with a confession. I don't dance. I, I sort of wish I, I don't know what happens when there's a social expectation that I should. I get sweaty, I get acutely self-conscious. Sometimes I might do a bit of shuffling, but I just don't like dancing. It's such a shame because my wife loves dancing. Uh, in fact, if there was one thing about me that she, you asked her if she wanted to change one thing, what would it be? I bet she'd say it was this. Although, probably in truth, there's a load of other things as well. Anyway, we're in the middle. The reason I'm saying that, the reason I'm saying that is because I'm going to talk to you about rhythm. And I know my friends will fall about laughing when they hear that I'm going to talk about rhythm, about timing. We're in the middle of Exodus. We're literally in chapter 20 of 40 chapters. It's a watershed moment. The first half of Exodus is all about salvation, about how God miraculously slaves, saves his people from slavery in Egypt. Now in the second part, we move into God shaping his people, God teaching them to obey him. Essentially, this principle continues in the life of every Christian. God saves us and then he shapes us. Sanctification follows salvation. Because he has made us holy, we can live holy. And the defining moment in the book of Exodus is Moses on the top of Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments. The first three are all about how we relate to God. And the last six are about how we relate to those around us. Which is why Jesus said the whole of Moses' law could be summed up by two commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty-two forty. The fourth commandment which we're looking at today covers both. Both how we relate to God and how we relate to those around us. Many regard this fourth commandment as a minor one, as an optional one, especially when you compare it to the biggies like don't murder or don't commit adultery. Actually, the commandments are like a string of pearls. You break one, you lose them all. So what is the fourth commandment that I'm talking about? Let's look at it in Exodus 20, starting at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We know that God's glory and our good are entwined. When we keep God at the center, we thrive. When we push him to the margins, we struggle. God has built into creation principles and rhythms that we are foolish to ignore. I mean things like day and night, the turning of the seasons, the flow of the tides, even the arc of our own lifespans. Technology might give us the illusion that we can ignore these things. But again and again, we find out that we do best when we fit 
with the rhythms that God has built into creation. When you read about the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, you see what God did each day. He begins by creating light and darkness and separating them. And then land and sea. And then plants. And then all the living creatures on the land and in the sea and in the air. And then finally on day 6, he creates human beings, men and women. When we get to the seventh day, it's a bit of a puzzle. It says in Genesis 2, uh, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. It tells us that on the seventh day, God rested. Why? Why did God have the rest? We know that his power is inexhaustible. Uh, Isaiah 40, 28 tells us that he never grows weary. He never gets tired. So why does he need to rest? What does it mean? And why are we called to rest on the Sabbath too? Helpfully, Jesus gives us a bit of explanation in Mark 2, 27. When he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that the Sabbath is ours. It was made for man. It's a gift for us. It's a sign of God's compassion for us and our health and our well-being. And it's his. It's something that we surrender to him and give to him. It's a way of keeping him at the center we are made in the image of God. It tells us that in Genesis 1:27. It means that we reflect his nature by entering into his rest, or that's part of what it means. God calls Adam and Eve to partner with him in creation. But which bit do they partner in? Which bit do they start with? The answer is his rest. They are created on Friday, and if, you, if you're familiar with the way uh, Jewish timing works, uh, the Sabbath begins on Friday evening as the sun goes down. So the very first thing that Adam and Eve had to do on day one was rest with God, to enjoy the completeness of what he had done. That enjoyment is called worship. It's the essence of worship, and it's the thing above all else that we were created for. The tragedy is that Adam and Eve don't stay in that rest. They rebel. They push God out of the center and assign themselves to the shadows. Through the Old Testament, you see this repeated pattern of this promise of rest to God's people and then this failure to reach that rest. You see it to the slaves that God is rescuing from Egypt in Deuteronomy 3.20. God promises this rest to them. He promises rest through establishing David's throne in 1 Chronicles 22.9. As the exiles return from Babylon to the promised land, again they are promised rest, Jeremiah 46.27. Again and again they get so close and then they miss it. Hebrews 3 and 4 spells out this, what, what is meant by this rest that God is promising to his people. Again and again they miss out on it until... Finally, Jesus stands on the earth 
and in Matthew 11:28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's talking about this rest where Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and the exiles all failed. Jesus succeeds. Just as God works alone in creation, so God in Jesus works alone in salvation. The Gospels are recreation stories. Jesus' work of redemption is finished by Friday evening. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, complete on that first Good Friday evening. And on the Sabbath, on the Saturday, he rests in the tomb. And then on Sunday, the first day of a new week, he rises again. We don't create ourselves and we don't save ourselves, but we participate in both. How do we participate? Primarily by entering into God's rest. God had purposes, make no mistake. He had things for Adam and Eve to do in the garden. God has purposes for us in his kingdom. But we start from a place of rest in all he did. That rest is worship. As John Piper famously says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we notice what he has done. We worship God by establishing rhythms in our life. Rhythms of noticing, of appreciating, of enjoying all that he has done and all that he is. That is primarily what Sabbath means. The Hebrew word for Sabbath simply means stop. Stop. We are called by God to build into our lives rhythms that involve regularly stopping, taking a breath, getting our bearings, centering ourselves again on God and all that he has done. If you make Jesus Lord of this day, you're more likely to make him Lord of all the others as well. No generation in history needs to hear this more than we do with our electronically illuminated digitally enhanced 24-7 lifestyles that are killing our souls. You know, many Christians, I believe, are functionally atheist. They believe in God. They attend church. But in their day-to-day -day life, they look no different to moral atheists around them. And many atheists are highly moral. God's message to the Israelites then and to the church today is be holy. Be separate. Be different. You are holy people. You are set apart. You're marching to a different beat. You're dancing to a different tune. I want to suggest that how we mark Sabbath, rather than being a minor issue, actually gets to the heart of this, what it means to be different. I have a friend called Kevin who for many years is a driving instructor. And... Uh, he loves God, loves his family, and he decided he was not going to work on a Sunday. Um, even though it's the most lucrative day of the week for a driving instructor. What do you think about that? 
Do you think that is outdated legalistic nonsense? Do you think it's superstitious point scoring with God? Do you think this is godly wisdom from a wise man living a Christ-centered life? I'm not going to say no one should work on a Sunday. But I am going to ask you, please think. Please think what the rhythms of your life reflect about where God is in the picture. You know, the Sabbath commandment is repeated twice uh, in Exodus and then again in Deuteronomy. And each time, different reasons are given. So in Exodus, it says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then in Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, again it says, observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But then the reason is, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. The first reason given in Exodus is about God setting a rhythm by his own example and us following it as people who bear the image of God. It's about showing God that he is more important than our work. That we'll lay it aside even if it costs us. It's showing him that we don't derive our identity primarily from our work, but by primarily from him and who we are in him. The second reason given in Deuteronomy is about loving our neighbor. Moses reminds Israel that they were slaves. For generations, they couldn't Sabbath. Moses is breaking this slave identity in them, but he's also reminding them that Sabbath isn't just about them, it's about their children and their servants. We've got used to understanding that our actions impact others, even at a huge distance. The way we use plastic affects the oceans, which affects others. Uh, our, Our desire, demand for cheap clothes, affects, impacts the lives of those who make them. Our demand for 24-7 convenience impacts others' ability to take rest and to be with their family and to worship God. So how do you Sabbath well? You know, in the Jesus time, the religious leaders had robbed it of all its joy and health. They'd made it burdensome. They even criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath or for eating on the Sabbath. So we won't do the same. We won't go down that route. For 20 years, I worked in the care sector. I had to work regularly on Sundays. I had to work out different ways that Sabbath worked for me and my family when I couldn't always rest on a Sunday. You may be in a situation where you can't control your work. In Luke 14, verse 5, Jesus talks about people... uh, rescuing an oxen out of a ditch on the Sabbath because it had fallen into a ditch. We just need to be honest when we're working on a Sunday. Are we rescuing an oxen that's fallen into a ditch or are we ignoring the principles that keep God at the center of our lives? A well-kept Sabbath will look different for each of us. 
But it, I think it will have some key principles. And, you know, as preachers I want to do, I'm going to make them all start with R. The first one is reflection. I think a well-kept Sabbath involves reflection. I mean worship. Worship is about looking. It's about pausing to look. Reflecting on what we see. Giving expression to what we see in worship. That's what Sabbath is all about. It will involve time with God. It will involve time with God's people normally. God's people have always gathered on the Lord's Day, one day a week, um, to worship Him and to form a community identity as His people together. Secondly, I think a a well-kept Sabbath will involve relationships, a focus, the one day a week when our kids and our friends don't need to fight for our attention because we've cleared space for them. Especially relationships that replenish you, I would suggest. It involves recreation, recreation, things that fill our tank. That will be different for all of us. A day spent working in my garden, for me, isn't a day's work. It's a day, usually, it's a day I feel fulfilled. I feel vibrant at the end of it. I feel rested at the end of it. That might not be you, in which case, don't garden on this Sabbath day. It might be sport for you, or it might be just time with friends, relaxing with friends, or it might be a walk in the country. It's just finding the things that fill our tanks. It involves resting. It involves making the day different. If you've got a young family, you've got to work out how you're going to make it different for the whole family. Two principles which I think we find in the Old Testament which I think help us think about Sabbath. The first is manna. You remember we looked at this uh, a few a couple of weeks ago, how God miraculously provided for his people in the wilderness this food substance coming down from heaven. And each day they had to gather just enough for that day. They never went hungry. Except on Fridays, when they had to gather twice as much so that they didn't have to gather any on their Sabbath day. So it means planning our time to make space to Sabbath. I was brought up in a Christian home, and one of the things I was brought up is not to do your homework on a Sunday. Imagine your parents telling you not to do your homework on a Sunday. But that meant I had to get it done on the other days. That meant it was Saturday. Have you got your homework done? It's a principle that I carried on into my graduate and my postgraduate studies and Believe me, some miraculous grace of God got me through both, but part of it was keeping to this Sabbath principle. If you haven't got a plan, you won't Sabbath. Uh, The second thing is about gleaning. You remember this principle that God gave to his people through the Old Testament law, that when they harvested, they they would sow seed by scattering. So when they harvested, seed was coming up everywhere, but they were told not to harvest right to the very edge of the field. They were told to leave a margin. And that margin actually was left for the poor so that they could come in. And I think we've got used to maximizing our time, filling every moment. And I think an important principle is to make sure that we, is to ask the question, where is the margin? If someone needs my time next week, where is the margin? It doesn't always come neatly so that you can plan it into your diary. Leave a margin. Don't maximize how you always spend your time. It's about carving space. It's about saying I'm going to make one day of the week different. Perhaps I'm not going to check my emails, certainly not my work emails that day. If I couldn't do it in six days, 
then there isn't time to do it. It's that principle. You have to hit that at seven days, don't you? We'll just move it a day earlier. Say it's six days is my limit. I'm going to keep my financial interactions to a minimum so that others are free to Sabbath too. I'm just going to slow the pace. We've got used to thinking about our impact on the planet. We've got used to thinking about taking care of our bodies through what we eat and the exercise we take. My question is, what are we doing to nurture our souls? Observing Sabbath forces us into a rhythm where being is more important than doing. Everyone is in a hurry. If it needs doing, do it now. If you want it, have it now. But God, in whose image we are made, is never in a hurry. He is relentless. All his purposes will come to pass, but he's never hasty. I think this is a particular challenge to us when it comes to thinking about how we shape church life. I've heard church leaders who use the scale of the need, and the need out there is huge, but they use it as an excuse for hurry. If we're going to see this many saved or see that happen, then we've got to reach this target by that date. And if we haven't, we need to speed up and work harder. But Jesus never taught us that response. When Jesus looked at the multitude in Matthew 9 and his heart is moved compassion with compassion for them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He sees the scale of a need, the need. And then he says, stop. Ask your Father in heaven and he'll send workers for the harvest field. He commends the Mary spirit of just enjoying his presence over the Martha spirit of anxious striving. He stops for the one by the roadside, even when the multitude are clamoring for his attention. This isn't an excuse for laziness. If it's coming across that way, then may the Holy Spirit correct it as you think about it. Go where you are sent and go quickly. Be quick to obey all that God tells you to do and do it with all your strength and all your might and all your heart. But don't act like it depends on you or try to force God to match your pace. Always start from a place of rest in who he is and what he's done. He is the Lord of the harvest. Francis Chan says productivity is no sin. But when it comes to the holy, which is about what Sabbath ultimately is about, God commands us to proceed with caution. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for this gift of Sabbath rest. May we enter into it. Help us to honor you in the pattern, in the rhythm of our lives. You are Lord of our Sabbaths. You are Lord of all our days. Amen.